0: So my name is Brandon. If I haven't met you yet, welcome to River and Way. Um, We're going to just walk through this passage today. Um, Before we jump in, there's an old sailing legend about a U.S. warship that's coming back into the States from a successful, successful, successful mission in Europe. And as the ship was coming kind of into Canadian waters, the legend goes that the captain notices this light directly in front of him. And he sees this light, and and, and assuming it's another ship, just starts to get worried about the collision that he's like, this is inevitably going to happen. This giant warship, seeing the light, there's a collision going to happen. And so he gets on um, his high-frequency radio, and he makes contact with what what he sees this light being. And he says to this on radio, he says, please divert your course 15 degrees north to avoid a collision. And he waits a second for it to move, but it doesn't. And then the Canadians respond back. They say, we recommend you divert your course 15 degrees south to avoid collision. And we have that game old like playing chicken right here. To which the American captain responds now with a little more like authority in his voice. And he says, this is the captain of the US Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. The Canadians reply, no, I say again, you divert your course. And in complete frustration, with so much authority that he could muster, the captain shouts into the radio, this is the aircraft carrier, U.S. Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, the largest ship in the United States and the Atlantic fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand you change your course 15 degrees north. That's one five degrees north or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of the ship. To which the Canadians reply, this is a lighthouse, your call. This is a lighthouse, your call. And it's a legend, who knows if it's real or not. But what I love about that story, it always reminds me, is in our scripture text today, we encounter a moment that's like that. It reminded me of that legend. We encounter this moment of this tension, like the old sailor reminded me. It's this tension between, um, in the story we're going to see the chief priests, the highest position in the religion and the cultural um, ethos of the divert your course divert your course divert your course but this group of holy spirit filled followers of him like they're like a lighthouse like a landmass and god is doing something new amongst them and we hit this moment where like god is breaking in in a new way and there's this tension moment that happens in our story And so that's what we're going to go into today. We're going to go verse by verse and just ask the Spirit, what do you have for us in this? What do you have for us as we follow in Jesus, we come to the scriptures um, as a way of saying, like I was praying before, God, would you form us? Would you like deposit something in us from this story today? that matures us and grows us in our following of Jesus. Uh, let's go to the next slide, uh, the bear. This is, we are in the church season of what's called ordinary time. This last year, we've been following the church calendar. Um, we celebrated Pentecost in early June, and that marks the beginning of the longest season of the church calendar, and it's called ordinary time. What a name, right? It's, it's, it's just ordinary, but why, why, what ordinary means is there's no major feasts in this time. Um, There's no Easter, there's no Advent, um, there's no Epiphany. It's just just the longest moment. It's the regular day-to-day living as a follower of Jesus. And in ordinary time, we as followers of him get to ask ourselves again, what are we called to do? Who are we called to be? We're remembered again that we are empowered and filled with the Spirit of God on mission in his kingdom um, growing in this city, growing in our, in our world. Wendy Wright says this, in ordinary time, we become attentive to the call again in our lives that we are to apprentice to Jesus. And so in the scriptures, in this ordinary time, we are in the book of Acts, if you're just joining us. We've been going from the beginning of Acts, and we're gonna go to Acts 10, when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the Gentile on the Gentile world, so that we're just going to get a little bit of Acts, but we're just going to walk kind of passage by passage, maybe skip in a few if time, uh, as time, as time permits us to do that. And we're asking our question this, what is life in the Spirit like with Jesus in the ordinary time? We live in an ordinary time with an extraordinary allegiance to King Jesus. And so if you have your Bibles, would you um, open them to Acts 5? Acts 5, verse 11. We're going to hit a big chunk today. Um, So like, hold on, put your seatbelts on. Um, We're going to walk through each. But as you're going there, let me just do a really brief recap of what's happened in the book of Acts. As you get to Acts 5, verse 11. Acts 1, Jesus is resurrected. He ascends into heaven to the right hand of the Father. He says, wait to his um, disciples for the gift that my Father has for you, which is the Holy Spirit. Uh, Acts chapter 2, um, the Holy Spirit descends um, on the disciples, 120 of them. This is Pentecost, and it begins the birth of the church. Peter begins to preach about what's happening, what, what everybody's seeing, and it says 3,000 people are, bapt- are repent and are baptized and are added to the church that day. Um, we have, we're going to see an echo of it today. We have a first conflict with the high priest, and he captures Peter and John. He brings them in to question them, and they're saying, and saying please don't preach in this name. And they're saying, like, we have to. And then we have our first conflict moment that uh, Cecil and Nick got to kind of talk through last week. This beautiful moment. The church is just, like, budding and growing, and God is so generous and gracious, gracious in this time. They're like, there's no needy among them. They're sharing their possessions. They're studying the apostles' teaching. The Holy Spirit through the apostles is doing incredible signs and wonder. Just this revival moment is happening. And then we hit their first challenge, and that was last week. We looked at Ananias and Sapphira, which is just an intense story. You have Barnabas who, who gives of his land and gives it to the disciples to distribute it among the people, anybody who had need. And then you have Ananias, Sapphira. They see that. They see the praise he gets. And they, they come and do the same thing, but with a deceptive heart. It's a moment of hypocrisy. And in that, they lose their lives. They both are buried. And this is really intense moment in the story. It's an echo back into Exodus when God's presence comes into the tent of meeting in the middle of Israel and Aaron's sons go in in a a way that they shouldn't have. And they fall down dead in the presence of God. It's this echo of this. And this is what happens as they respond. So look at Acts 5. Great fear sees the whole church and all who heard about these events. Great fear sees the whole church and all who heard about these events. Like fear sets in. And there's different ways to think about fear biblically. Um, there's the fear of like I'm scared of something, like I'm, I'm frightened by something. Um, a biblical idea of fear, there's some of that there. There's a, there's, a, there's a scaredness, like oh my, there's something holy. But a biblical fear is more of just a holy awareness of something. It's like if somebody important walked through the door right now, somebody high up, we would all just become aware immediately of of like, oh, we are supposed to act a certain way. We're supposed to be a certain way. This is the idea. Fear sees the whole church and all who heard of these events. They become aware of just the holiness of God. They become aware of, of like... Taking the hypocrisy out of their lives and saying we have to come with pure hearts and pure hands before God. Let's look at verse twelve. Then this is what happens among them. The apostles perform many signs and wonders among the people. So what is the response of the fear? The apostles perform many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. Remember that place? Verse 13, no one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded among the people. Nevertheless, so even though nobody joins them, here's verse 14, nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. First, we go from this incredible challenge to the integrity of Jesus and the movement of Jesus with Ananias and Sapphira, to this moment, this incredible work of the apostles. The result is this reverent awareness and this fear of the Lord brings us another kind of wave of revival among the people. Crowds, it says, gathered all around the town surrounding it. They come into Jerusalem. People are bringing, their sick, they're being healed. People who are tormented by impure spirits are experiencing healing. And it's this incredible, unique way, in this unique way in the story, which I don't even know fully what to do with, is that even like as Peter's shadow passes, people are being healed. I think what we're, we're supposed to see in this moment is like, this is incredible. This is an incredible mo- moment and move of God. And you can just imagine for a second, use your minds to think about the buzz that is happening at this place called Solomon's Porch. This renewal thing is taking place. Imagine the joy of everybody coming into town, bringing their sick, or those who are tormented by like an evil spirit, them experiencing healing, imagine the response of people in that moment. If you were there, what would that look like? Could you just like feel some of the energy and the joy of people just being freed? People are coming to believe in the saving King Jesus and all of it's happening where? I I asked you to put that place in your mind, Solomon's portico. Um, I talked about this a few weeks ago when we talked about Pentecost and where that took place in Peter's sermon. This is where I believe the actual upper room is. Um, Show that next slide uh, up there. Uh, Next slide. So here is the Temple Mount. The X is where Peter would preach his Pentecost sermon. Um, And over to the right on the blue squiggly lines, uh, what there would have been there back in this day was a giant, all they have now is giant poles, giant pillars. And there would have been a giant shade structure. And this is where, if you imagine, you were coming all throughout um, Israel to Jerusalem three times a year to worship at the temple. And this is where a lot of travelers would sleep. They would come in, they'd basically make a little camp, and just hundreds and thousands of people would sleep in this place. And that is not a small building, by the way. This is a giant, giant place. It's three football fields long on the, on the um, west side of the building. This is a giant facility, the Temple Mount. And so this is Solomon's porch on this right. This is where they are to worship Yahweh, to go back over to the porch and to begin to teach the people about Jesus. There's healings. People are coming all into Jerusalem. And where are they going? Where um, the the Dome of the Rock right there, over that is where uh, the temple, the Israelite temple would have been. They're not necessarily going there now. So just as a, to get our minds around it and like, I was trying to think of just an analogy for that. Imagine you're the manager of the great concert hall at the Walt Disney LA Philharmonic. Has anybody been there before? they see a show? Oh, come on, people. Let's get some, we're gonna do some culture. We're gonna go down. It's beautiful. Just this beautiful building, classical music, like going and seeing the greats. And for generations, this place has been where concert goers have come to hear the classics. And imagine you're the manager of that place. That's your job is to manage the music that comes in. Make sure tickets are sold. Make sure people are, they know what to do. You're, you're, um advertising for these shows. And everybody who's anybody comes and they play here. People write in the press about it. Important people invest work when they go into this concert hall. Imagine you're the manager of that place and then quite suddenly out of the, out of the blue in the middle of a busy season, a small ragtag group of performers meet outside the concert hall every day and just start playing like new kind of rowdy renditions of what would take place in the concert hall. Again, you're the manager and you think this is strange at first. You probably think they're not going to be around here that long. There's no harm, no foul. But then you realize that a lot of people are coming to your concert hall, coming to see and hear not what's in your program, but instead they're coming to see this ragtag group of street performers that are on the side. Crowds gather, they stay outside. Some of the leaders of the ragtag band, they start becoming well-known. People start to talk about them. The press is writing about them. They're becoming influencers on social media. And now as the manager of a concert hall, you become quite concerned, wouldn't you? You would become quite concerned. Perhaps it's time that you actually call the police. And you have this little ragtag group removed or shamed or even arrested for disturbing the peace. And more importantly, as the manager of this concert hall, disturbing your influence. That's some of the the tension that's happening here that I want us to see. And this is where we find the apostles. They're right outside the temple, right outside in this complex called Solomon's Porch. And how do we think the high priest and his associates are going to react to this? Let's read in verse 17. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and they put them in the public jail. We didn't get time to teach through this, but in Acts 4, a few chapters back, there's this incredible, incredible um, crescendo building in Luke's storytelling. Luke is the writer of the book of Acts. And in Acts 4, Peter and John are arrested, told not to preach in his name. They still do it anyway. In this story, um, there, we're going to see kind of an echo of that, very similar of Acts 4. And then next week, we're going to see the third part of that, where they actually take Stephen into it and he is the first Christian martyr. He is stoned to death. That's where we're introduced into Saul of Tarsus or his Greek name is Paul. Um, we, We were gonna introduce that. So this is this crescendo moment. This is the second iteration of them in front of the Sadducees. And we just had Pentecost. The apostles are filled with what? They're filled with the Holy Spirit. But here the high priests, they're filled with something else. Let's go back to that verse there. They're filled with something else. They are filled with jealousy. Filled with jealousy. That the high priest and his colleagues would regard this movement, they would regard it as a direct threat to their status, to their power, to their importance. Even though they wouldn't see it that way. They would see it as they're trying to honor God, to be reverent for God's house, the temple. They had the power, they were the guardians of the holiest spot on earth, this temple. They cannot simply allow the apostles to carry on the way that they were doing it. And we find ourselves in the tension. So the apostles are removed. They're put into jail to await trial before the Sanhedrin. And just like with Ananias and Sapphira, we don't know what's going to happen now. What is going to happen to these apostles? It's not just Peter and John arrested this time. It's and tell the people about this new life. This moment of tension, they're arrested and in the middle of the night, and the like, angels seem to like love doing this in the book of Acts. This is the third, third time in scripture that this is going to happen. During the night, an angel of the Lord opens the doors and tells them to go back. They're arrested from where they're supposed to be, pulled this way. The angel opens the door and says, go back. To do what? It says to tell the people about this new life. And I love that phrase that the NIV uses there. New life we'll see in the book of Acts, early, the early church didn't really know what to call this thing, this, this following of Jesus. They didn't really have a name for it. In Acts 9, it's called the way. Um, it's even river and way. That's one, of our, that's one of our like names. We love that, practicing the way of Jesus in Bakersfield. They're called the way. Here, the angel doesn't really even know what to call it. Just tell them about this new life. In Acts 11, in Antioch, it's finally when we get the name Christians. It just means Christians, little messiahs, is all it means. But that's a name that somebody else calls the group, and we've kind of taken on. The angel releases them from the prison and tells them to go continue to talk about this new life. And I love that phrase just for us. And I want you just to take that phrase new life and apply it to like to your following of Jesus, to your walk with God. Often we think of it as not a a new life, but just like new information that can happen sometimes or something we've inherited. But I want you just to think about that word for a second. Is following Jesus for you, does it feel like new life? Does it feel like new life? Is the angel, what he calls it, this is new life. And one of the things I want us to see this morning as we go through the story is just to kind of recapture some of this beauty that's happening in this passage as they're filled with the Spirit, as they're seeing miracles and signs and wonders, as they are, as they are like loving each other in generous, incredibly generous ways, self-sacrificial, like incredible community that's this new life that's introduced. Verse 21, let's keep going. At daybreak... They enter the temple courts and as they had been told the angel told them and they begin to teach the people and when the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assemblies of the elders of Israel, and they sent to the jail for the apostles. So get the scene. They're, they've gathered all the important people. Everybody's in the room. They know the apostles are right over there in jail. Little do they know they've been released the night before. They get in their seats. They're ready to go. They send for them to come back. Let's keep going. Verse 22. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and they reported, uh, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found nobody inside. And I think, like, th- you can't write this stuff. Like, it's perfect for a movie. Just find the humor for a second. Everybody is ready to go, filled with jealousy, ready to, like, combat, to compete, to, like, see what's going to happen with these apostles, and they're not there. They have no idea. What- how do they respond? Verse 24, on hearing the report, the captain of the guard told of the temple guard and the chief priest, they were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Verse 25, then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail, they're standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. Verse 28, he says this, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you're determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. And here's where we get a little glimpse behind the high priest's like motivation. There's jealousy, yes, but Peter was also preaching in a way that was saying, like, you guys missed it. You killed Jesus. You killed the one we've been waiting for. Stephen later in this next verse will say, isn't there, is there not a prophet you guys haven't killed? Like, there's some, there's some sharp daggers in these words of Peter saying, you've missed it. They are, they are upset that this group of apostles is determined to make them guilty of this man's blood. You are the high priest. You are the one that goes into the temple on the high holy day in the presence of God, and you missed the presence of God among you in Jesus. Like, wow, this is what Peter's accusation to them is. And this is where we find the tension in this challenge. Just like that that legend I told you at the beginning of the U.S. Warcraft, warning a coming light, warning the coming light to redirect its course, the high priest here sincerely warns them to turn their course again. You guys need to stop this. But Peter responds like that coming light of the old legend, like we're a lighthouse. Like You don't understand, we're a lighthouse. It's your call. Verse 29, here's what Peter says. Next verse. Verse 29. Peter and the other apostles replied this, we must obey God rather than human beings. Looking the high priest to him in the midst of the Sanhedrin, all the important people in Israel says this, we must obey God rather than human beings. Peter and the apostles at this moment, they are reminded of their calling. They're reminded of their vocation. Jesus himself has commissioned these apostles to go and to make disciples, to teach others about the way of Jesus. They're recalling, actually, Jesus told us to do this. The disciples are filled with the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, to be witnesses to his resurrection. They have just seen Jesus resurrected. Like, they're standing with resurrection power in front of the priest saying, like, I know what you want us to do. You want us to change course, but we've seen Jesus alive. There are signs and wonders that are breaking out amongst them. There's repentance. There's baptism. God is doing this new thing. The angel of the Lord himself releases them from prison and literally says, go back and continue. Like, don't stop. If you were in this situation in front of the Sanhedrin, like, how would, how would you react? Like you cannot stop. You cannot keep talking about Jesus. Like you can't, you were, you were flooding Jerusalem with this teaching and it must end. And Peter again is filled with boldness. I understand you want us to stop talking about this, but we must obey God rather than men. Verse 30, he goes on the God of our ancestors. He brings them all in on this. The God of all of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, who you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to the right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, who God has given to those who obey him. Peter, again, gospels. He tells of the gospel, that Jesus Christ has been risen from the dead what he said what Jesus' words they're all validated in his resurrection jesus is savior and king over you high priest and i must we must listen to him we must obey him for he gives us the holy spirit and then peter like really rubs it in uh this jesus who you handed over to be killed is now offering and get this what does he say the jesus that you killed is now the one who is offering Israel repentance and forgiveness of their sins, in that lower line. The very thing that they are supposed to experience at the temple from the work of the priests and the high priests, Peter says, Jesus now gives that repentance and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things. He will give them repentance and forgiveness. And they wanted to put them to death. If you imagine the scene from Jesus's um, false trial, like the high priest tore his robes, everybody's yelling at Jesus. It's similar to that. Verse 34, but a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, he stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a while. So this character named Gamaliel stands up. He says, hey, apostles, go back out for a while. We're going to have a conversation with just the the Sanhedrin that are here and the Pharisees. Who is Gamaliel? We only get to see him once, but we have from like historical records who this man was. Gamaliel Gamaliel is well known from the Jewish sources of a period and later. He was remembered as one of the greatest rabbis at the time, um, known for like exemplary devotion and holiness. He knew the law backwards and forwards, and he was a rabbi. This was actually Saul of Tarsus' rabbi who later we know him by his Greek name, Paul, St. Paul. This is his teacher standing up in the Sanhedrin and giving them some wisdom and giving them, like, how do we instruct this? And Luke kind of puts it in this story, I think, for us to see as well. Luke 30, Acts 35 says this. This is um, Galileo speaking. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel... Consider carefully what you're about to do to these men. Remember, they're furious. They want to put them to death. Verse 36. Some time ago, Thaddeus appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and his followers were dispersed, and and they all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all of his followers were scattered. So he comes to them. He says, Let, "Let's remind ourselves of some history here. You remember that one upstart group that started there? Like, remember what happened? They, they, it looked pretty promising. There was 400 men that came to them. This is like this is a lot of disciples, but that's like 400, and that stopped. And then you had this other revolt, and that stopped. And then he frames it all up in verse 35. Therefore, in the present case, here's my advice to you: Leave these men alone. Let them go." For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Gamaliel proposes a posture of patience. Almost like, let's wait and see what happens. His principle is clear. If this is a human invention, if what's happening at Solomon's porch, if what's happening with, this, with the Holy Spirit and this, this character named Jesus who's claiming to be resurrected, if it's a human invention, it will fail by its own weight. But if it's from God, beware. And since at the moment you can't tell which it is, um, you better leave it alone. Leave it alone and see And Luke interjections of Gamaliel's proposal here. He invites us and the rest of the book of Acts to actually start to examine this. Like, is this a work of God? Where does it come from? What is this about? And we get to see as the story goes further and further, like God continuing to have his hand clearly in this, clearly in this movement. And what Gamaliel proposes here is like a watch and wait and see approach. And I love the wisdom of that here. We're not even like, this seems like God intervening a little bit. God intervening through the wisdom of this teacher to say, let's pause and be patient. It reminds me of like one of my favorite, one of my favorite parables that I've ever heard and that just sticks with me all the time is a parable of a, a Japanese farmer that had a wife, had a son, and had a little farmland um, with a horse. That's all he had. He was poor, but he had a little bit. And so the Japanese farmer um, also had a patient posture in all things. And one day, um, as they were finishing up their work on the farm, um, the horse broke free and broke out of the fence, and he runs away. And that was their only workhorse. It's all that they had. And so his wife comes to him and says, I can't believe that our horse has escaped. Like, woe is us. Where will our money come from? How will we farm the land? And she looks at her, her husband, who's just kind of calm and not, not affected by it, and she goes, aren't you worried about this? And like, like, this is going to be the end of our lives. And he simply responds, we'll see. We'll see. The next day, um, as they wake up in the morning uh, making a cup of tea, they look out the window and that horse has come back now, but with three other wild horses. And they're sitting there going, and like, this is amazing. They're all just there. And, so, and they, they capture them, they corral them. And his wife looks at his husband and goes, isn't this the best thing that ever happened to us? The best thing, that look how rich we are now. We have horses. We can sell. We can make money. And she looks at her husband and says, isn't this the best thing? And he says, we'll see. The next day, the son is out working, their only son, out working. And he's trying to break these horses to get them to work. And he finally gets one in kind of the right space. And he gets on top of the horse. And the horse bucks him off instantly. The son falls to the ground. And he breaks his back. And the wife comes to comfort her son and says, these horses are a curse. Isn't this the worst thing that could ever happen to us? And the husband says, we'll see, we'll see. You know where this is going, right? This is how it works. (laughs) And lastly, the next day, generals come from the city and say, we are recruiting all able-bodied men into a war that just started. And they look for his son, who has a broken back, and they say, you can't serve in this. And his wife says, isn't this the best thing that's ever happened to us? And the husband says, we'll see. In some ways, what this moment is, I think is actually a posture we should, be, we should take as a people, as a community. There's this posture of saying, if it's from God, there will be success. It will live. If it's not, God takes care of it. What I see here is this posture of deep trust. Deep trust. And I don't know where it comes from in Galileo, if it's from a posture of like, being, um, he doesn't seem to be following the way of Jesus, but he does seem to know the way of God. And the way of God it says, "Where's the fruit? Is there fruit in here? And where the fruit is, that means it's a good and healthy tree." How does the assembly respond to this? We'll see from Gamaliel, verse forty. His speech persuaded them. They listened to him. They called the apostles back in. They had them flogged, and then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Having no other recourse, they similarly um, had, had nothing else to do with them, so they resorted to violence, which is how it usually goes. And this would have been the same flogging that Jesus would have had. Forty lashes minus one. Forty believing that was what would kill you. This isn't just a slap on the back, this is a flogging, like Jesus did before his crucifixion. They're told yet again, do not speak in the name of Jesus, and they sent them away. And in all this, we've heard Peter's response. Well, let's see how the rest of them respond here. Verse 41, as we kind of land the plane this morning. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. As we believe, um, as followers of Jesus, that we are called to be with Jesus, to abide in his presence, people of his presence, not just a cognitive way, but a contemplative way of being with Jesus in all of life. We seek his presence continually. We are supposed to be formed into becoming like Jesus and doing the things that Jesus did. This is what it means to apprentice to Jesus. And so in light of this passage, like, what do we take away from it this morning? What does the Spirit want to deposit in us as we follow the way of Jesus? Three things I just was asking myself this week. Because I hit this passage, I was like, there's about seven different ways we can go. And just me asking, like, God, what do you have just in my heart? Um, And I just want to share those with you. The first is this, it'll be up there. The apostles are joyful in suffering. The apostles are joyful in suffering. You've just been through this whole ordeal. Imagine yourself dragged to jail, freed from jail, told to go back to the temple, dragged back into the Sanhedrin's court. You kind of standing up for it, them again, like not, not listening to you. They flog you. What's your response? Their response is this. They rejoiced because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. The apostles were joyful in suffering. Ah, Not often. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Not because you were being a jerk, but because of him, because you were following Jesus. Verse 12, what's our response? Jesus says this, Jesus teaches them this. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In becoming like Jesus, my friends, we will endure as you tr- like follow Jesus. There will be an endurance of suffering for disgrace for his name. That will come with it often I've seen like in life following Jesus, if we actually never get any like opposition, it's, sometimes it's an indication of like, what is our, is our life really aligned to following Jesus? We will, we will encounter and we will collide with the stories that are told in our culture, in politics, in, in even religion. And even those who, who claim to know, that's a hard thing to say. Like, Yes, we need to mourn and lament, but there's also the element of rejoicing that you were counted worthy to, to bear some of the wounds that Jesus bore in following him. Number two, something that hit me this week in this, the apostles persevered in faith. They persevered in faith. What I love about this, they get flogged. Um, The high priest says, don't ever do this again. And the very next verse says, day after day, in the temple courts, from house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news. They basically said, like, yeah, 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 we're going to go and do it anyway. They, like, rightfully rebel in that sense. They continue in the perseverance of faith. James 1, 2 says this. It'll be up on the screens. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, And my sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, why? Why do we consider it pure joy? Verse three, because you know that the testing of faith produces perseverance. And so my friends, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. If you're a follower of Jesus, I think that's the goal, like to be mature and complete. Shalom, wholeness, not lacking in anything, Verse five, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. I love that passage in James. When we're experiencing suffering or trials, I love it, of any kind. Every one of you has a trial of any kind. I guarantee it, we can lay it there. He says, let perseverance have its work. Like, continue to endure in faith. You know that it matures you. And verse five, it says this. If any of you lacks wisdom, Ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. In the midst of trials of various kind, often we want release from it or relief from it. But Jesus, like the passage here in James says, ask God for wisdom in it. I love that. We ask God for wisdom in the midst of trials because it's in that that we grow, not lacking in anything. And lastly, just for our time and our response is this. The apostles, lastly, they listened to Jesus. Or maybe a different way, they obeyed Jesus. Obeying is not just cognitively knowing, but it's acting. It's, It's listening, listening to Jesus. In this entire account, they had a clear call to whose voice they would listen to. Over and over again, you have this tension between two voices in this story. There's the voice of Jesus, the voice of the Spirit, the voice of the angel who comes and frees them from prison and says, do this, do this, do this. And you also have the voice of the high priest and all that were assembled with him telling him to stop. And in it, you have this tension again. Remembering the commands of Jesus and being told by the high priest not to do it, that tension that is there. And in boldness, the disciples again Lean into listening to the words and the commands of Jesus. John fifteen ten says this. If you keep my commands, Jesus is saying this, you will remain in my love, keep my commands, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. And I imagine them in the moment saying, we want to remain in the love of Jesus. Remain in this like love that the Holy Spirit has poured into us and is pouring out from us. And so we will keep the commands of Jesus. The apostles were joyful in suffering. They persevered in faith, and they listened to Jesus. And so we just want to give some space in response today as we take the bread and cup um, to, like, to, to lean into some of those. Um, we're going to have some just time of worship, um, of time of response, and that idea that the disciples, that they listened to Jesus. You guys can come up and get ready. Um, that they listen to Jesus. Um, I just was prompted this morning, just even in prayer. Um, one of, a passage that Jim shared was just to seek the Lord, um, and that that verse comes to mind: "To seek the Lord, while He can be found." Um, and the the disciples here they clearly know they clearly knew who to listen to. Um, just in the world and the mirage, just voices all over the place. The voices saying, "Don't follow Jesus." Of them saying, "No, we will. Like we must listen to God and not just mere human beings." And my invitation to you is this: as we, as we kind of take communion, as we take the bread and cup today, you are taking the bread which is His body; you are taking the cup which is His blood. The new covenant that we like we proclaim His death until He comes, and in doing so, like I want to this morning to be an act of listening to Jesus. And maybe just this last week or this season of life, there's just been some voices um, in your world, um, voices in your world that, in a sense, are pulling you away from listening to the commands and the way of Jesus. And they're there in my life too. Like I'm going to spend time with Jesus in this as well, and to come back with the bread, the body, and the blood in hand to say, Jesus, I want to listen to you. What do you have to say? And in our time of responsive worship, like just to re-engage in active listening to the Spirit. Reengage to what he has, anticipating that when we come and seek God's presence, like he is near. If we seek him, we will find him. To open our eyes to listen to Jesus again. So we're going to do that as we respond, as we end today. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we open up our lips to worship you. We open up our hands um, to surrender to you. We open up our mind to know you. We open up our heart to know you. Uh, Jesus, just in this time of response and of worship, we open up our ears to listen to you. So Holy Spirit, come. Would you, um, would you speak like into our circumstances and into our lives, um, into the tension that probably a lot of us in this room, like we have, we're, we're in this tension of voices. Um, voices in, like from culture or that story um, voices from friends and family who um, like are, are, are speaking things that aren't from you. Or God, maybe there's been this dolt, like this new life that this angel commanded them to talk about. It's become just like a bland life and like this way of listening to renewal that you want to do in our hearts. And so we've just, we come to worship you, to give you our time and attention this morning. Spirit, we are not in a hurry. We're not in a rush, uh, but we're here uh, to encounter you. So God, would you open our ears to hear? Which Spirit, would you speak? In your name we pray, amen. Uh, you're dismissed to grab communion elements. Grab the bread and grab the cup. Um, there's wine, there's juice, so, so choose what you would like. There's also gluten-free crackers. Um, so come and grab those. Um, come back, we'll sing maybe just a chorus or so. Come back, stands, and then uh, we will lead a time of communion.